I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians this morning, chapter 15. If you don't have your own Bible, there should be one in the pew back there for you. It's in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 18 this morning. And we're going to use this kind of really as our launch pad And we're going to look at several other passages of Scripture as well. But uh, we're going to take a break from our studies in Luke. We normally go verse by verse, chapter chapter by chapter. But specifically this week on this day, we're going to be looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is kind of a rare opportunity for us to study something topically rather than uh, systematically like we do. But uh, this being Resurrection Sunday... I wanted to try to answer three questions for us in regards to the resurrection. First of all, number one, what is the resurrection? What is that? Number two, why was the resurrection of Jesus necessary? Why was it necessary for him to go through that and experience that? And then number three, the last question I want to answer is, what are the benefits for us as believers from this resurrection. So we've got some questions to answer there. Why was it necessary for Christ to be raised? What is it? And what are the benefits to us as believers? So my prayer as we get into God's word this morning is that we can come to know the significance of the resurrection and have a greater adoration for God himself as a result of that understanding. And so we're going to try to do that in a short bit of time that we have here. If you're there with me in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15... I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. God's Word says this, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Then our preaching is is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins." Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for its sufficiency and its clarity, Lord. And so as we study the resurrection, we, we just pray that we would come to an understanding, a deeper appreciation, a deeper adoration for what you have accomplished through that, Lord. Help our minds to be engaged. Help our hearts to uh, apply these truths as we leave from here today, Lord. We just pray that this would honor you and bring you much glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So is the resurrection of Jesus Christ important to believe? Is it something that we must hold on to as an essential component of our faith? Or is it something that's kind of neither here nor there? We can kind of cast that off to the side. Well, Marcus Borg, he's a liberal theologian who was also the 
founder and leader of the Jesus Seminar, which you've heard me talk about in the past before. And he just actually recently passed away a couple months ago. But he said this in his commentary about this specific passage of Scripture. He said this, quote, As a child, I took it for granted that Easter meant that Jesus literally rose from the dead. I now see Easter very differently. For me, it is irrelevant whether or not the tomb was empty, whether Easter involves something remarkable happening to the physical body of Jesus is irrelevant, end quote. Now, not knowing this man, the state of his soul, or anything like that at death, or what he believed completely about Jesus Christ, I would think that now, having just passed away a couple months ago, that now more than ever that he would probably love to retract those words and that statement. You see, if we were to list out in a systematic way the non-negotiables of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus would be of such an absolute theological necessity, so much so that if you deny that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have literally walked away from biblical Christianity. Even in the text we just read, Paul gives us six reasons alone as to why the resurrection had to have occurred, and we're going to go over those a little bit later. But the resurrection of Jesus is not an optional take-it-or-leave-it doctrine. You can't just throw it into a category of irrelevancy. In fact, I would say that it is one of the pinnacles of Scripture in that if you try to take that away, you have taken away all hope of redemption, you've taken away the hope of salvation, and you would fundamentally lose all hope in the gospel itself. If we miss the importance of the resurrection to our salvation, then we have even severed ties between our salvation and the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is that important. All four gospel writers chronicle the resurrection. Paul, Peter, John, the author of Hebrews, Daniel, Isaiah, David, and Job all speak of the resurrection in one form or another. Even if we would go back to the early church fathers, such as Polycarp, who was martyred at the age of 86, and he was a disciple of John's, he urged Christians to believe in God and, quote, who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead and gave him glory and a throne at his right hand, end quote. Tertullian, Origen, Gregory of Nicaea, all wrote in defense or in affirmation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Historically, the church as a whole has understood the necessity and the importance of the resurrection, both of Jesus Christ and those who are believers in Christ, that they sought to cement that in the earliest creeds and confessions of our faith. Now, creeds were typically things written in defense of something and confessions to affirm something, but that's kind of neither here nor there. Sometimes they're used synonymously. But, for example, the Apostles' Creed, which many of you have heard before, which is probably written around the 1st or 2nd century, there is both the resurrection of the Lord and the affirmation of the, refer- the resurrection of the believer spelled out within that creed. There's a couple variations of it, but I'm going to read to you the one var- variation I found. It says, I believe in God Almighty and in Christ Jesus, His only Son, our Lord who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and was buried, here it is, and the third day 
rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father, whence he cometh to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the remission of sins, and here it is for us, the resurrection of the flesh, the life everlasting. The first church council that was ever convened in Nicaea in 325 AD, which generated the Nicene Creed, which is a bit more lengthy than the Apostles' Creed, again, emphasizes the resurrection of our Lord and the future resurrection of those who are believers in Jesus Christ. The Athanasian Creed of 500 AD, again, affirms the same thing. The Westminster Confession of Faith of 1646 says in chapter 32, At the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed. And all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies, and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. There is unequivocally been an overwhelming conviction of the church historically that Jesus Christ arose again on the third day following his crucifixion, and that there will be also a bodily resurrection of his people. Because if there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no Christianity. And if there is no resurrection, there is no salvation. Now, first of all, we should begin by answering our first question. And that is, we have to understand the meaning of the word resurrection. What is it? What is the resurrection? Resurrection from the Greek literally means to rise again, to rise again. Now, generally speaking, when Christians talk about the resurrection, we tend to think of just this spiritual existence beyond death with the the soul going to heaven and the body lying in the ground, rotting and undergoing decay, right? In fact, one survey I saw stated that two-thirds of Americans don't believe that they will have bodies after the resurrection. But when we talk about the resurrection, we are literally talking about that which has been put into the grave, namely the body. Most people tend to only spiritualize the resurrection, and that is not completely accurate. It might be because of verses like Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, which says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. So we kind of read that and we think that our, our body is dead and our spirit is alive and there's this supernatural regeneration that has occurred in me as a believer in Jesus Christ. And so we tend to incorporate maybe a little platonic thought, right, into our understanding of the resurrection and that the, the soul is good and the body is bad. So why would they ever be joined together again after death? We're, we're just some sort of hermit crab in these bodies and we're just temporarily occupying this space until we get to be with Jesus in glory. But if we read on in Romans chapter 8 and we look at verse 11, it says this, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. 
So it's not just a a spiritual renewal that Paul is talking here. It's not just the renewal of our inner man. But verse 11 clearly tells us that the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that is the same body that was placed in the tomb, is the same spirit that is going to give life to our mortal bodies as well. So this body that you currently possess will someday rise again. Now... That might disappoint some of you. Some of you might be thinking, oh, gee, you know, I I really don't like the body I have right now. I'm not really happy with this body. It's breaking down. I certainly don't want to be overweight in heaven. I don't like how tall I am. I don't like that I'm balding. I don't like the gray hair. I don't like my nose. My my teeth are kind of crooked. I, I wish I was just a little taller, you know. I got this bummer of a birthmark even, you know. Whatever it is, I'm not sure what it is, but I don't want all of this resurrected in heaven. Well, there's two things that you need to come to grips with about your body and understand. One for the here and now, and one for the future in regards to the resurrection. First of all, your body here and now. I've got to ask you, who made you? Who formed you in your mother's womb? Who knitted you together in your inward parts? What part did you have in selecting your hair color? Or what your face looks like? Or how tall you are? Or or even what birthmarks that you have? When you look at yourself and you grumble and complain that you don't like this about your body, or I don't like that about my body, you are basically standing before God Almighty and you're shaking your fist at Him and tell Him, You've made some sort of mistake, God. You've done me wrong. Let me tell you, folks, God doesn't make mistakes. You are not only fearfully made, you are wonderfully made, Psalm 139 says. Don't grumble against your body now. Yeah, we got aches and pains, we got things we don't like, but don't grumble. So, the second thing you need to know is about your body in the future, the resurrection, is that your body is not going to be totally the same as what you have now. And we know that because of the example we have from the only person to ever go through and experience the resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might be sitting there and saying, well, Matt, how can you say that Jesus Christ is the first person to go through the resurrection and experience that. Isn't there countless examples in the Bible of people that were raised from the dead, like Lazarus and Jairus' daughter and the, the widow of Nain? There's Old Testament examples of Elijah, right, raising the widow's son. How is it that you can say that Jesus is the first person to go through and experience the resurrection? Well, there's some similarities there, but there's also some stark contrast and some stark differences of all those examples between that and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the similarities are that when you look at all those people who are brought back from the dead, such as Lazarus or Jairus' daughter or the widow of Nain, for example, just like Jesus, they were all truly dead and they all came back to life in the bodies that they were in previously. Okay? So there's some continuity there in that respect. But when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, there was a significant radical transformation 
of his body in such a way that his body would not have to undergo death again. It would never undergo aging. It would never decay again like Lazarus' body would or Jairus' daughter's body would and so on and so on. Those people would all die again at some point in the future. And that's where the discontinuity lies. Jesus, after he was resurrected, would never again have to be subject to those things because he would no longer possess a simple mortal body, but would have put on immortality, as 1 Corinthians 15.53 tells us. His body would no longer be perishable, but imperishable. You can, you can sort of look at the body, uh, your body like you would car shopping, right? You go to the dealership, and you want to look at the entry-level car and you, just to get you around town, right? And so you're there, and the, showman, the salesman comes in. He shows you the car you're looking at, and, and you think to yourself, okay, that's pretty nice. I like that. You know, I can live with that. That's what I wanted. And, and so as you're looking around, this guy shows you the next model up, and it's got power windows. It's got power locks, and maybe it's got a sunroof, and you think, okay, I like that one better, Right? That would be really handy, especially if I had to lean over and roll down that passenger window. I wouldn't have to let my fat roll on the side go overlap on my waistband. And so that power window feature would be really nice, right? But then he pulls around another car, the next higher model of the car you want, and it is loaded. It is really sharp, right? It's got the upgraded engine. It's got the sunroof. It's got heated leather seats, which, by the way, are just incredibly awesome as you get older. It's got the paddle shifters on the steering wheel, so you can really go fast. It's got all the bells and all the whistles. It's got features you didn't even think were possible to car. It's got an outlet in the back. Just everything that you could or anyone else could possibly conceive of in a car, it is there. It's an ingenious option, right? It's got everything. It's the same car you were looking at in the beginning, but it's been modified and it's been upgraded to the max. That's what your glorified and resurrected body will be like. Your body will have all the upgrades that you will ever need and all of the features that you never would have even thought possible in a glorified and resurrected body. No more struggling with sin and temptation. No more weakness. No more aches and pains and sickness and death. No more worries in life, no more anxiety, no more fear, no more disappointment, discouragement, or despair. In the resurrection, you you will then experience the same radical transformation that Jesus Christ experienced in His. He is the firstborn of many brothers, or the first fruits of what God has done for Him. He promises that He will do the same thing for you and me. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, For our citizenship is in in heaven, from which also we eagerly await a Savior with uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. So your body will be totally, fully perfected, fully glorified at the twinkling of the eye in the resurrection. Okay, so the second thing that we asked at the beginning is, Why was it necessary for Jesus to experience the resurrection? Meaning, why wasn't it simply just enough for Jesus to die on the cross, pay the penalty for our sins, and then just be done with it? Why did he need to be resurrected? Well, the first thing that we can say is that the resurrection was necessary 
to prove the truthfulness of God's word. It was to prove the truthfulness of God's word. He said he would be resurrected. In Matthew 12 and also Matthew 16, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and those two different accounts, they come to Jesus and they say to him, they test him and say, give us a sign from heaven. And the sad thing is, they had seen plenty of signs. And he says to him, all those people, he says, it is an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. But he does say to them, here's one thing I will give you as a sign. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. Remember, Jonah was that reluctant prophet uh, who tried to flee from God uh, by sailing to Tarsus instead of going to Nineveh, as God had told him to do. But then he was thrown into the ocean. He stayed in that great fish for, for three days and three nights and swallowed up, and he remained there until he emerged out of the belly. So Jesus would remain in the grave until he was resurrected. In John chapter 2, verse 19, after Jesus had just cleansed the temple with the money changers and he overturned the temples and he made a scourge of cords and drove out everyone trying to make a profit in God's holy temple, the Jews come to him and they say, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus replies to them in verse 19, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise up. Meaning that if you crucify me, In three days, I will be made alive again. I will be resurrected. So it was necessary to prove the truthfulness of God's word. Second reason the resurrection of Jesus was necessary is for our regeneration. It was necessary for our regeneration. The supernatural, monergistic act of God by which he takes our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh and makes us a new creature. The merciful act of God that takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of light. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our God and Father that has raised Jesus Christ up physically, out of the grave, is the same God that raises us up spiritually from death to life. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 says, But God, being rich in His mercy. Are you seeing a pattern there about God? God is merciful. Because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Because we have such a broad-shouldered God who is strong enough and powerful enough to raise Jesus Christ from the dead, He is more than able to save you and me out of our spiritual death by the power of His Holy Spirit and cause us to be born again. So it's necessary to prove the truthfulness of God's Word. It's necessary for our regeneration. And thirdly, it is necessary for Jesus to be raised from the dead for our justification. Romans 4.25 says, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions was raised up because of our justification. So, why was He raised for our justification? So that you and I would know that God had approved of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
In other words, the penalty for our sins had been completely paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. And that by raising Jesus from the dead, God was saying that the work of Jesus Christ was now complete. Think of it this way. What if you're playing ball outside with your brother or sister and you're throwing the ball around and then one of you takes the bat and swings it and knocks the ball right through the living room window? And unfortunately, Dad was sitting in there with his bowl of popcorn and got shards of glass all inside of it and he's just trying to relax, watching, you know, trying to watch gun smoke or something, right? And now he's got all this glass and his popcorn. He's not a happy camper. So your dad comes out. He's furious. And he tells you, you're going to pay for every last cent of that to fix that window. And then on top of that, you're going to get a spanking because I'd already warned you not to do that. Well, then here comes your big brother. And your big brother comes out of the house and he looks down at you. He feels compassion for you, right? And he looks to your dad and he says, you know what, dad? He goes, I'll clean up that mess. I'll pay for the broken window. And I'll even take that spank that you're supposed to get for this child. So your dad agrees to it. And he said, okay. He sends your big brother to his room. And at this point, you feel miserable. You feel really bad. Your brother is in his room for hours and hours. And as long as he's inside that room, you get the gist that the punishment is still being carried out. But once he comes out of that room, you understand now that dad is satisfied with the punishment and and your dad is happy that your big brother is not there forever and ever. So it was necessary for Jesus Christ to be raised from the dead for our justification. Otherwise, you and I would never know that our sins had been completely atoned for or that Christ was even worthy enough or that the sin debt that we created had been paid for in full. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. He said, quote, For if Christ were not risen, it would be evidence that God was not yet satisfied for our sins. Now the resurrection is God declaring His satisfaction. He thereby declared it that it was enough. And Christ was thereby released from His work. Christ, as He was mediator, is thereby justified. So why was it necessary for Jesus to experience the resurrection? To prove the truthfulness of God's word, it was necessary for our regeneration, it was necessary for our justification, and then the last one is, is that it was necessary for Jesus to experience the resurrection for our sanctification. Romans 7.20, or rather Romans 7.4 says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. It is only by the power of God raising Jesus Christ from the dead that you and I have even a remote chance of trying to be able to conquer sin and being able to walk in newness of life. If you've ever tried to do it apart from Christ, I have, you know how impossible it is and you know how miserable that really is. But because God raised him from the dead, you and I are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God and are able by the power of the Holy Spirit to have the assurance and the confidence that we have the ability to grow in godliness. If we would continue reading on in 1 Corinthians 15, which is really the resurrection manifesto of Scripture, Paul concludes his thought on the resurrection by saying, Therefore, 
My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Remember that whenever you see a therefore in the scripture, in the Bible, you are supposed to ask, what is it therefore? It's a concluding thought to what's been previously said. And Paul is saying that in light of these great truths about the resurrection of Jesus and our future resurrection, striving to run the race in such a way that you will win the prize and working out your salvation with fear and trembling will be all the more sure and all the more worth it. So our last question, what are the benefits for us as believers from the resurrection? Well, I think we can kind of reflect on the opposite from our text as is an indication as to what we would consider to be a benefit because I see six things here that Paul lists as a negative consequence if there was no resurrection. Well, let me reread these verses to you beginning with uh, verse 12, so that they're fresh in your memory again. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do you, do some among you, say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So evidently, there were some Corinthians there that were saying that there was no resurrection of the dead, and Paul is going to spell out some devastating truths to them if that was not true. Okay, so verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are found, uh, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we had hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So there are six things listed there that Paul says would be disastrous for us as Christians if the resurrection of Jesus had not occurred. And I'm going to give them to you here in pretty rapid-fire succession. One, preaching the gospel would be futile. Verse 14, two, our faith as Christians would be in vain. Verse 14 again, anyone who talks about Christ and the resurrection would be a misrepresenting God. Verse 15, number four, we would still be in our sins. Verse 17, number five, our loved ones who have died before us have all perished. Verse 18, and then sixth one is, if we all, all we have is hope, we of all men are the most to be pitied. Verse 19, now, Since Christ has been raised from the dead, I think it's safe to say that the opposite of those six items are true, and thus they are a benefit for us as believers. Number one, the gospel that you hear preached is actually effective, profitable, and worthwhile, from verse 14. Paul laid out the argument very thoroughly in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he said, And when I came to you, brethren... I did not come in superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith does not rest on the wisdom of men, but it rests on the power 
of God. He didn't use smoke and mirrors. And yes, folks, there are some churches in this world, in America now, that are starting to use smoke in their worship service, claiming that the glory cloud of the Lord is among them. What charlatans, all right? Paul didn't use gimmicks. He didn't use drama. He didn't use light shows. He simply preached the gospel. Number two, our faith as Christians is actually fruitful and valuable. Faith is probably one of the most misunderstood and most twisted convictions of both inside and outside the church. Our faith is not based on some blind hope or wishful thinking, but Christian faith is based upon, it's not based upon despite the facts, but it's just the opposite. It is based upon the assurance and the confidence in light of the overwhelming evidence. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Assurance and conviction are not the language of once upon a time or taking a leap of faith. Faith, but rather it is a confidence that the facts of the gospel and of the confidence in the faithfulness of God himself. Assurance and conviction is, is, as Rabbi Zechariah says this, he says, faith in the biblical sense is substantive. It's based on the knowledge of the Holy One in whom faith is placed has proven that he is worthy of that trust. It is, in essence, faith is a confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in his power so that even when his power does not serve my end, my confidence in him remains because of who he is. Peter didn't just jump out of the boat blindly, and Thomas didn't just cry out, My Lord and my God, because Jesus proved to be unfaithful, but just the opposite. Number three, anyone who talks about Christ and the resurrection is actually speaking the truth of God. The gospel or the good news couldn't actually be good news if this was not true. Number four, we are indeed no longer in our sins. Romans 6, and 23 says, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Number five, our loved ones who have died before us in Christ have a hope and a future resurrected and glorified body. 1 Thessalonians 4 15 through 17 says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air And so we shall always be with the Lord. Six, since we can have confidence in the resurrection, we can have assurance of things yet to come despite our sufferings and our trials here on earth. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that those tribulations bring about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope 
does not disappoint. There is no disappointments in heaven. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see, beloved, the the resurrection is not something that we can just cast aside into a category of irrelevancy. It is crucial, it is fundamental, and it is absolutely critical to our faith. In fact, Romans 10.9, and what many of you are familiar with, says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. The hope of us as Christians is that we will be like him who has gone before us. Death is not the end, but is only the beginning for us. Let us rejoice this morning in a faithful and mighty Savior who has conquered sin and death through the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your power. We thank you for your might in raising Jesus up from the dead. Just as he was transformed, Lord, we too who are in Christ will be transformed. We will put on the imperishable, Lord. Just like a seed that goes into the ground, it must go undergo decay and dying. And Lord, we feel it sometimes in our bodies. We feel the aches and the pains and the hurts. But we know that as that flower breaks through the soil, it blossoms into a beautiful flower, Lord. So we too look forward to the resurrection of our bodies, to be with you in glory, to never have a a day that never grows old in glorifying and praising your name for who you are and what you've done. Lord, help us to hold on to these truths. We just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. join us to sing by standing. 